Good morning. My name is Madison. Today's reading comes from 2 Corinthians, chapters 8, verses 1 through 15. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, parents and guardians of children second grade and younger, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Rock. As you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich, in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift of the believers for the believers in Jerusalem. They did more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving, since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us. I want you to excel also in the generous act of giving. I am, command, I am not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it, if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, there will be plenty and later they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left and those who gathered only a little had enough. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. What's wrong? Okay, it's all my fault. Those, all those things were my fault. All right, good. Um, hi, good morning. My name is Matt. It's great to be back. I have need practice. Um, I was in North Shore last week preaching there. Um, it was great to see those folks. That's our planting church. We were part of that church in 2012, my wife and myself. And um, many of you are also have connections to High Rock North Shore. It was great to be there, um, meet some new people. It's cool to see their new space and their new building. Obviously important for us to keep that relationship um, strong and live and intact as the High Rock Network um, undergoes some changes, and we want to make sure that we are still in strong relationship with our sister church there. Um, I did miss being here, though. Uh, I was anxiously asking Megan, like, how, how did it go? And she was like, it was great. And I was like, oh. <laughs> it's like this delicate balance for her, right? She has to be like, it's great, so we don't need you. And then she also has to be like, but it, it would have been better if you were there. So she has to assuage my concerns on both ends of that spectrum. Um, but it is really good to be back here and be home with you guys and be part of our church. Um, as always, I want to invite you into a moment of reflection, of quiet, so that we can put our distractions that we might be feeling and facing before the Lord this morning and be present to hear from the Spirit. So please join me in a moment of collecting ourselves quietly before the Lord.
Lord Jesus, in this space where we gather, we know that you are here with us. Uh, help us to feel and to know and to experience your grace, uh, that it washes over us, that it pervades our entire lives, every single corner, every single area, every single thought, every single feeling, that your grace comes over us and that we respond to it this morning. I pray these things in your powerful name and for your sake. Amen. Let me paint for you a word picture. I'm going to call it Friday. This is Friday. You grab a latte on your way to work. You grab Chipotle on your lunch break. On your way home, you stop at Target for a drive-up pickup. You order Chinese food in the parking lot because you're exhausted. You don't have energy to make dinner that night. You get home. You crash on the sofa. You turn on Netflix to unwind. You're only half-watching as you scroll through Poshmark, a resale clothing site, and see if they have any vintage jackets that are sort of your style, right? Because it's been a long week, and it's Friday. You can't find anything on Netflix or Hulu or Disney Plus, so you splurge and you buy Spider-Man No Way Home. It's Friday. You're sitting there scrolling with one hand on your phone, eating pork lo mein with the other hand. Peter Parker's webbing bad guys on TV like it's his job when an Amazon delivery guy puts a few boxes on your porch and he puts them right next to the FedEx boxes that were delivered earlier that day that you forgot to bring in. Friday. At the end of a long week, in a polarized, stressed-out America, each individual purchase in isolation is like not that big of a deal, right? But you put them all together, and this is like a couple hundred dollars on a Friday, and you never even had to touch any real money. It was all clicks and swipes and taps, easy peasy. Good thing all that spending left you feeling 100% better, refreshed, relaxed, restored, renewed, ready to do it all again next week. It's not too far from home, is it? A 2021 study found that the average American spends $1,497 per month on non-essential items. Half of that is eating out at restaurants or drinks. It includes things like TV and subscription services. It includes gym memberships. It includes music, impulse buys, <clears throat> Hogwarts, Lego, Castle, anybody? <laughs> impulse buy, right? Did you know that 40% of the money spent online is spent impulsively? Unplanned. You just saw it and wanted it. We are good at spending money. We are so good at spending money that we don't just spend the money that we have. We actually spend the money we don't have. Let me introduce you to my friend, Chase. Last name, Visa. <laughs> he has tons of siblings and cousins and friends. Chase Sapphire, Capital One, Wells Fargo, Discover, Amex. Each one is happy to be my friend and give me another line of credit. More than 70% of Americans have a credit card. And around half of Americans have a credit card debt. The average balance is over $5,000. Big whoop, right? This is not a problem. We have the God-given constitutional right to purchase happiness. Did I say purchase? I meant pursue. That's what it is, right? To pursue happiness. So we're happy, right? Hashtag best lives? Maybe not. There is a famous Princeton study that revealed that having more money does not actually result in more happiness. Up to a point, money does make a huge difference. Life is more manageable above the poverty line. But above a certain level, money does not mean more happiness. In fact, studies show that no matter how much money we make, we want more. People generally feel that if they had 20% more than they currently have, no matter how much they have, 
that would be enough for them, 20% more than what we currently have. Which means that most people, most of the time, whether they have a little money or a lot of money, are stressed out about money. One reason is that we have a tendency to go right up to and sometimes even past what we can afford. We don't just spend a lot, we max out what we have. The typical American spends all of the money that they make on themselves. Which means that we're not able to respond when the need arises. We're not able to intervene when tragedy strikes in our lives, let alone anyone else's lives. If we're maxed out, then we're not able to be generous in the generosity that Christ invites us into. If you give the average American a dollar, they give about two pennies of that dollar to somebody else, and the other 98 go to themselves. It's pretty sobering. We are in our fifth, series, fifth sermon in this repurposed series. In previous weeks, we've talked about excesses in all of these areas of life, including food and, food and clothing and possessions and media, and we've covered some practical suggestions on how we can live with less so that we can give more, and today we are talking about spending. How do we spend less so that we can give more? So how is your spending? How's your spending? So I thought we could just take a look at all of our bank accounts. No? No? Too sensitive? It's interesting, right? We might open our closets so you can see our clothes. We might open our refrigerators or pantries so that you can see our food. We might even open our browser histories. But our bank statements? Man. That feels private because it's mine. And what I do with my money is my business, and I can spend it how I want, when I want, where I want, on what I want, because it's mine. Unless it's not. What if it's God's? What if God has given it to me, not to just spend on myself, but to steward, to care for? to use in God's name. That's the shift I'm suggesting this morning, that when it comes to money, we go from a spending mindset to a stewarding mindset, that we go from a this is mine to this is actually God's, that we use this tool, money, and it is a powerful tool, in a way that the world would see the grace of our God. In the passage that Madison just read for us, we see this in the extraordinary generosity of a group of churches. Here's the background of the situation. I just want to make sure we understand the context of what's happening here. In the book of Acts, we read that the Christians in Jerusalem had started to face persecution. And all of this persecution culminated in the stoning of Stephen and his martyrdom. So it became dangerous in Jerusalem for believers to gather together and to be a bigger church. So they decided to protect themselves and to flee from Jerusalem all over Judea and scatter small churches everywhere around. Acts 11.28, things get worse. Famine strikes, the people start to go hungry. Since they're all scattered, they can't support each other in the ways that they used to in the earliest days of the church when they shared everything that they had. So they're isolated, they're separated, they're scattered, they're all by themselves, and they are in trouble, these little churches. The Apostle Paul hears about it, and he sweeps in, and he activates the network of churches that he helped plant start, that he started he helped start plants all over the Mediterranean. And in almost every subsequent letter that Paul writes, he mentions this collection of money that he is raising for these churches in Judea that are scattered. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul gives instructions concerning this collection, and they eagerly jump at the opportunity to contribute to it. Their enthusiasm is so great that it inspires other churches to jump on board and to give too. 
Their giving inspired more giving. That's the Corinthian church. But then something happened. We can't be exactly certain what happened, but we know that the Corinthian church ends up turning away from Paul. They reject his teaching and follow the leadership of other people. And not only do they turn away from Paul, they also stop contributing to Paul's pet project, this collection for the churches in Jerusalem. Paul, not one to let things go, pins 2 Corinthians to set things straight. In chapter 8, he gets to the Jerusalem collection, and instead of telling them what they should do and scolding them for their behavior, he actually tells them a story of another church, a church not far away in Macedonia. The Christians in Macedonia weren't like the Christians in Corinth. See, Corinth was this gateway city located on this isthmus, and it was a busy trade route. So Corinth was a wealthy city. Macedonia, not so much. Macedonia is a poor city, a poor area, a poor region. And the churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, to name the ones that we know about, didn't have enough for themselves, let alone for anybody else. They were so poor, in fact, that no one even asked them to contribute to the fund in the first place. No one wanted to make them feel bad for having so little themselves, so no one even asked them to contribute. They left them out of the request. But you know what they did? They found out about the collection, and they begged for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers. They gave. They gave not only what they could afford, but they gave far more, and they did it of their own free will. They had every reason not to give, and no one would have thought any less of them for it. And yet they gave, and they gave so generously. Why did they do this? Why did they do this? There's a word that occurs five times in this passage. It's the glue that holds this whole passage together. It's the reason. It's the reason that the Macedonian churches gave to the churches in Judea. And sometimes this word gets translated differently into English, so we might miss it if we just read through the passage in English, but it's there in Greek over and over and over again. Listen, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. They urgently pleaded with us for the grace in sharing this service. We urge Titus to complete among you this act of grace, to excel, and you excel in so many ways, see that you also excel in this act of grace. Grace, over and over again. And here's the most important verse, verse 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Why did they give so generously? Because they had experienced the generous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich. He became poor. By his poverty, they became rich. And out of that richness in Christ, they gave generously. You see, the material poor Macedonians knew what the wealthy Corinthians had yet to learn. God loves to give. God loves to give. And the recipients of God's grace also love to give. Christians don't give out of obligation because we're supposed to or because if we don't, we're going to get in trouble with God. We don't give to God to pay him back for something. And we don't give to make a return on our investments. We don't give so that we get in the future. Sometimes you'll hear preachers say that if you give a dollar to God, then God will give you $10 in the future. Or that if you give a dollar to God, it's kind of like investing in a heavenly 401k plan. And when you get to heaven, all these treasures that you've stored up, you can just cash those in when we get there. But <laughs> no one really believes that. Not even the preachers who preach that believe that. 
Because if they did, they'd be standing on street corners, handing out dollar bills to everybody that they saw. No one believes that. No, the preachers are instead collecting the money and buying jets, right, in the process. Christians give because we've been given to. That's the reason. What we've been given is not material wealth. God gave God's own son so that through Christ's death and resurrection, God might give us life and life to the full. This gift, this life is so valuable that if we found it in a field, we would sell everything that we had just to have that field and the treasure contained within it. We would sell everything we had just to have it. And yet God gives it to us freely. And grace gives birth to grace. And gift gives birth to gift. And when we give, we begin to look like the giver. This is why we don't hoard what we have. This is why we share it. This is why we don't spend it all on ourselves, but we repurpose our much into more for others. Some of you give like the Macedonians, joyfully, abundantly, because you've experienced God's astonishing grace, and you give out of joy. And some of us are more like the Corinthians. We say we're following Jesus, but we're not really contributing We're not involved in these transactions of grace. Now, of course, money is not the only way to share, for sure. Money is not the only way to give, but it is definitely a way. And for all the reasons that I've already mentioned, it can be one of the most challenging ways for us to give, which is probably why God encourages us to be so generous, because it tugs at our hearts. We're trying to get really practical in this series, so in the name of practicality, I want to share the best strategy that I know of to be more generous, to curb spending, to increase our giving and generosity. The best strategy that I know to demonstrate the grace of God is to just try harder. Just try harder. No, that's the worst strategy, right? Like, that never works for anything that we try to do, just try harder. We actually need a real strategy. So, the best strategy that I actually know of to be more generous, to demonstrate the grace of God more faithfully and more consistently is to create a budget. <laughs> All right, so the idea of creating a budget might strike you as like horrible. Like you might hate that idea because you see spreadsheets and you get the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> like, no, no, thank you. I don't want any of that. But creating a plan for our spending that reflects our values and who we are in Christ is the first step to having control over our finances and breaking free from the stranglehold that money can sometimes have on our lives. Megan and I follow a budget, and we have since we got married 12 years ago. At times in our marriage, we've actually gone to the all-cash system with envelopes. Never as much money as in the envelopes on this slide, but nevertheless, we had envelopes. And at times, we have faced the realities of those envelopes. We ran out of money in the eating out envelope. We ran out of money for that month in the eating out envelope. We learned a lot about ourselves in this process and our tendencies. And it was, an actual, it was actually an unexpected source of marital counseling <laughs> at times, this process for us. We don't currently use envelopes anymore, but we still follow a budget. And rather than taking away our freedom, it gives us more freedom. It gives us more control. We spend according to the budget that we have created based on the values that we hold as followers of Jesus. I read that we are in the minority, though, that uh, 61% of Americans don't keep a budget, and that 40% of Americans have never even tried to worry about a budget. I want to encourage you that creating and following a budget is totally possible. If only there was some kind of crash course on budgeting available. 
Oh, wait. We have one of those this Thursday night. Pastor Brent Linehan from High Rock North Shore, my good friend, biblical scholar, expert at dry humor, and very logical thinker, is hosting a budgeting class that you are all invited to attend. It's called Transforming Our Wallets. And no matter where you are in the budgeting process and no matter what your income is like, you will get a ton out of this one-and-a-half-hour session. I'll send a link this afternoon. I sent it out last Friday. It is totally worth it. It's the beginning process or the continuing process of getting more control. And without getting into all the nitty-gritty that he'll cover on Thursday in an hour and a half, a basic framework for budgeting is to think of our spending in three categories. Three categories for spending. Give, save, and live. In that order. Give, save, live. First, give. Before we do anything else, as an act of worship, as an expression of gratitude for the grace that we've received, we set aside money to give. How much should we set aside? Hold that thought. For now, just step one, set aside some money to give. Next, save. Three in five Americans do not have $1,000 on hand in their savings right now. Three in five. That means most Americans are a car repair or a medical bill or a splurge on Bieber tickets away from adding to their credit card debt, even tumbling into financial ruin. Now, $1,000 is a lot of money for a lot of people, and hitting that reserve can be really challenging. Inflation is like out of control, right? 7% just this year alone. Everything, the price of everything has gone up. You might have student loans or other debt to think about. It might take a while to get to $1,000 in savings. Did I mention there was a free budgeting class this Thursday night? <laughs> Rent breaks down the saving category like it's, like it's like amazing, like the things that are in saving. You won't believe it. First, give. Second, save. Third, live. After you've given, after you've saved, live on the rest. Some spending to live is obligatory. It is rent, it is mortgage, it is insurance, it is food, it is transportation, it's cell phones, it's internet. Some spending is what Brent likes to call the funsies, the funsies. <laughs> Eating out, it's movies, it's after-work lattes, it's Bieber tickets. He's coming in June to TD. You guys know this? This is like why it's on my mind, I don't know why. Um, with a budget, you can still do the funsies. You can still do those things. And you can do them wisely. And you can do them without feeling guilty or feeling nervous about the consequences. A budget gives you control over your money instead of it having control over you. If the numbers I shared earlier about non-essential spending, 1497, half of it going to food, if those are actually true, then just sticking to grocery stores instead of eating out all year could save us up to $9,000 a year. What could you do with an extra $9,000? What kind of giving could we do with an extra $9,000? I mean, that's potentially life-changing for someone. That's a car. That's a down payment. That's tuition. That's job training. Give, save, live in that order. So I told you I'd come back to how much to give. Here we go. So... The biblical tithe, the word tithe is literally 10%. That's an Old Testament word. That's a topic I could preach a whole sermon on, especially after the last two weeks of research. Um, many Christians use this as a benchmark for their giving. I don't think 10% is a hard and fast rule, and at times I think this has been misused and abused in church contexts. Some of us cannot give 10% right now because of our circumstances. Some of us are in a position to give more than 10%. 
We talked about Zacchaeus a few months ago. When he experienced the grace of Jesus, do you guys remember how much he gave away? 50, right? 50%. Jesus said to love our neighbors as ourselves. So 50% sort of seems like it's on the table, right? 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says that God loves a cheerful giver, and the next verse says that we must each decide in our hearts how much to give, cheerfully. So ultimately, I can't tell you how much to give, but C.S. Lewis can. Ready for this? <laughs> I'm afraid, he says, that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the common standard among those with the same income as ours, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch us or hamper us, then I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. There ought to be things we'd like to do but cannot do because we give away so much. That seems like a pretty good principle to me. Thank you, C.S. Lewis, again. One more thing. If we're trying to figure out how little we can give and still be good with God or anyone else, then we're missing the whole point of generosity. We're making giving about us, but generosity is about the other. Another thing, if, as you decide what to give, don't bankrupt yourselves. This is what Paul says in Corinthians chapter 2, verses 8 and 8, 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. When he's talking about the contribution to the Jerusalem church, he says, give according to what you have, not what you don't have. He's not asking them to give so much at the end of destitute. He wants them to give wisely and responsibly. And he wants them to give regularly, too. In his first letter to them, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, he wrote, On the first day of each week, you should set aside a portion of the money you've earned. Don't wait until I show up and get there and try to collect it all at once. Like, be setting aside regularly. Make giving a regular, consistent rhythm. I think it's a really important part of giving. When we invite God into the things that we do all the time, then we'll be connected to God all the time especially when that thing is as important to us and tugs at our heart so much like money does. Give regularly. There are times when we give emotionally. We hear a story of suffering. We see a montage of sad puppies set to an 80s love ballad. A hurricane wrecks a community. A country invades another country. Our hearts go out in these moments, and we give, and we should. We ought to give in these situations. This is like when we send a request out from the Family Support Initiative here at High Rock. We hear that a family in the area is facing a crisis. They're struggling to pay a bill. They're struggling to buy diapers. They're struggling to buy groceries. And if we're prepared, right, if we've been saving, if we are ready for this moment, instead of maxing out all the time, we can step in to this situation with $100 from you and $100 from you and $100 from you and, and all of a sudden we're helping avert a crisis. It's good to give in response to these moments of crisis. And we can also give regularly and consistently to help prevent the crisis from happening in the first place. This is an idea that I got from Pastor Andy Stanley in a sermon that he gave. He argues that regular, consistent giving is even more important than giving in response to a crisis. Regular, consistent giving, he argues, to a healthy local church. Because the local church provides care and support to people to help them avert crisis, the relationship doesn't collapse because the couple seeks help and counsel and prayer. 
The kids don't lose their way because they have safe, constructive places to build friendships and ask questions and explore their faith. A person struggling with their physical health or their mental health finds an anchor during a worship service, an intimacy in a small group setting so those people know their story. A person who loses a job gets meals and help with their rent checks. There are so many organizations worthy of support. There are so many out there, and we should support them. But I believe the church is the most important one. And I know that's a strong statement. And I know that the church is messy and imperfect, and I know the church is sometimes corrupt. And I know that Christ is the hope of salvation for the whole earth. And I know that the church is the representative of Christ on the earth. And I know that there are strong, humble, grace-filled churches, Holy Spirit-empowered churches, often doing the unglamorous, steady, faithful work of teaching the word and of ensuring that people are supported and loved and cared for. Now, we are a young church in the grand scheme of churches. We are three years old, but I'm excited about what God has called us to do and what we're doing in the community and what we're doing when we gather in these spaces. It won't surprise you, I'm sure, to know that we, Megan and I, are super invested in this community in High Rock Haverhill. We believe in it so much that we have oriented our entire lives around it, as have so many of you. This is the kind of church that we want to be a part of. This is the kind of church we want our kids to grow up in. This is the kind of church that we want our community to see Jesus through. So Megan and I, we give to support this church. Before we do anything else with our spending, we tithe here. But you know what's amazing? Each month, on average, 16 individuals or families who do not attend High Rock Haverhill contribute financially to High Rock Haverhill. 16 every single month for three and a half years. They live in other cities. They attend other churches, but they've heard about us, and they believe in us, and they support us. One family gives $25 a month. It's wonderful. One family gives $500 a month, and it's wonderful. One family gave us a $20,000 check last fall. It's wonderful. And they don't give because they have to. They get literally no direct or personal benefit from their gift to us. They give because they know the grace of Jesus. They give because they want a strong local church to exist here in the Merrimack Valley so that we can come to it. And every month when these gifts, when these graces come in, I am overcome by joy. And I thank God for his provision. And I share those details with you today because I want you to feel joy too. These are your sisters and these are your brothers in Christ. And they love you dearly. So my invitation is to receive their love with glad hearts. Amen?